Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Southern Tomfoolery Unlimited, the interview show where we like to STFU for once and listen to the wise words of our fantastic guests. I'm your host, Zach, joined as always by everyone's favorite space daddy, Mr. Adam Kelly. What's going on, Adam? Another day, another broken toe. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to hear about that, man. That's a shame. Yeah. Well, the good news, aside from your broken toe, which I guess is bad news, is that We've got a great guest. She's the author of book two of Signal of Screams, of the Signal of Screams AP, I should say. She's a Paizo organized play developer, freelance writer, and Twitch streamer. Just a few of the many hats she wears. Jenny Jarzabski, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, So we're so glad to have you here, Jenny. First, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. We mentioned your Paizo work above, which we will get to, but what do you do when you aren't writing and developing for Paizo? Well, um, gosh, I have a lot of different interests. Uh, let's see. I, I really like outdoorsy stuff, so I like to do a lot of hiking. Uh, I've done some rock climbing, mostly indoors, but haven't done it as much since, you know, the the pandemic time. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure we all we all understand that. Um, yes, indeed. I'm also just into games of all kinds. I'm in a home campaign, Starfinder, right now with my lovely coworker, Thurston Hillman, as the GM. Oh, and nice. a couple of our friends playing. It is pretty wacky. It's his homebrew Starfinder campaign uh, using using like the Paizo setting plus is how I'd explain it. Uh, it's a lot okay. of fun. That campaign has kind of been ongoing in different iterations for probably like three or four years now. So wow. yeah, this is this is kind of like a secondary, like a sequel to a campaign we previously ran. And so I, and video games, stuff like that. I also really like cosplay. So I'll occasionally dress up weird for conventions <laughs> or, or like Renaissance fairs, things like that. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So Lots speaking, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of TTRPGs. So what was like your first entry into the hobby? What well, what got me hooked? All right. Yeah. That's a great question. So I always tell people in interviews or people ask me that I'm, I have been kind of a role player since I was a kid. Like probably a lot of us were anyone who played, you know, imagination games was, was really a role player. We just didn't have dice uh, unless we were, unless we were lucky and had parents who got us into the hobby early, which I did not. Um, I was like a baby GM at that time. I would, I would come up with whole scenarios and like characters that I would play. Like I was always a villain um, to have my (laughs) friends play the game and I loved it. And it's just funny because I didn't actually try a a formal TTRPG sort of game until I was in, I want to say I was a freshman in high school. Uh, I had a friend whose dad ran old school second edition D and D and they invited me. Uh, of course, at the time, I had just read the uh, Drizzt Du Erden books, and I was a drow, uh, like a drow fan, girl, junkie, whatever you want to call it. And of course, the, the rest of the group is like, oh, grown, because like they know about what drow are actually like. <laughs> and so they, they were nice. They agreed to let me play a neutral drow. But this is like old school. We rolled, um, you know, rolled stats, things like that. And I was excited. Was but it like right down the line? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I remember my stats were horrible. Like, I, oh. I, I don't know. I, I was, it was bad. Like, I don't think I had anything over like a 10. So, oh, no. Yeah. It was pretty bad. Um, But I was still 
you know, interested. The problem was I came in on a day that they were, they had just gotten out of a big dungeon crawl and they were going through all their treasure that they'd gotten. And that went on for like 20 minutes. And that was enough to just like take me out of it. (laughs) I kind of spaced out and I played, but I never really went back. Uh, Then in uh, right after college, I worked part-time at a comic book store and game store. And one of my managers asked me if I wanted to play a game with her. And she's like, I play, I run this game called Pathfinder. And, and that's really how I started because at that point I got just addicted to it. Like I started going to org play um, in my area. Like, you know, I started with playing, then I GM'd, then I started volunteering at local cons and uh, just kind of, you know, the rest is history. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. It tends to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, you are also a self-proclaimed fan of science fiction and indeed even yeah. a transhumanist as as your yes. Twitter says. So uh you know we're also big fans of sci-fi. What are some of your favorite science fiction works? Um uh, trying it's to a broad <laughs> question, but you it, know uh, Yeah, of any medium it doesn't matter, you know, just yeah. throw out some some of your go to like yeah. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, obviously everybody knows, like, I mean, a lot of people like Star Wars and and Star Trek and all that. And I'm not a huge Trekkie, but I I do like Star Wars Uh, since I was a kid, grew up with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am a fan of Dune a lot, like the books. And I'm so excited about the movie. About getting like an actual good movie, hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) Third time's a charm. Third time's a charm. (laughs) We all hope so. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and actually the Starfinder team was going to go see it. Our hope is to go see it together as like a bonding and team building activity. So that's going to be fun. Uh, And other than that, though, I actually like a lot of like anime sci-fi. Like Macross is one of my favorite things as uh, right now. I haven't seen it, but I'm watching Outlaw Star uh, for the first time, which is a lot of fun. But, you know, stuff like Cowboy Bebop and, you know, just like those classics. I I just love. Are you looking forward to the Bebop Netflix? I don't know if I'll, I mean, I guess like I'll probably check it out because uh, that's the live action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, it might be good. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> so we'll I, see. I have my fingers crossed. I'm very hopeful. Yeah. I'm very yeah. hopeful. I know it's controversial <laughs> to say that, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it seems like so thus far from what we've seen that they are trying very hard to maintain the aesthetic and vibe of the original show. But the thing is, Anime and live action are very, very different mediums. Yeah. You can do a lot of things in anime that you can't really do in live action. And so I, I, I hope it's good. I, too, am optimistic that it'll be good. But, you know, yeah, I've been burned before. So <laughs> Oh, and of course, Ghost in the Shell is like one of Classic, my all time yeah. favorites, especially for the transhumanism aspect of it as well. So. Well, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of yeah. transhumanist <laughs> things, uh, yeah. I've heard you're a big fan of the Drake and Near series. Oh my um, God! Yes, uh, Automata is one of my You've favorite games of all me. time. <laughs> and so, like, you know, what what draws you to this to 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 Yoko Taro's sprawling oh. epic? Oh gosh, it's just it's it's so interesting. Like, the, it's such a rabbit hole. Uh, I I got I got near Automata for a Christmas present one year, and I was like, oh, this looks cool. Because uh, jokingly, my partner gave it to me and was like, you know, you like you like silver haired anime protagonists, <laughs> and you you like robots and stuff. So like, you know, you'll like this game. And I was like, all right. So I play this game. Like, I I like 
devoured it in probably under a week, um, just like obsessively playing it. And it, I feel like it broke me psychologically. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it did. But at the end, uh, so at ending E and no spoilers for people that haven't played it, I, I was like bawling my eyes out for like 10 minutes. And I feel like that is the most transcendent and like perfect experience I've had in a game, like a video game. Um, I'm drawn to the themes, of course, of like what it means to be human right. and, you know, machine intelligence, things like that. Uh, also, you know, Drakengard is is kind of the, the beginning of that. And there's some interesting, you know, things that play there, too. But uh, it's it's just because I think there's iterations of these same character concepts and the story truly does go throughout all of these games over like thousands of years and when you see the whole picture like when you play the games and of course it's like okay you got to play the game you've got to read the tie-in novel you've got to watch the play you want to watch the play and again. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly i love that though and it's like once you get the full grasp it's just like oh god like he like it's amazing how much he did he created this really weird and it's a tragic world but Ultimately, it is hopeful. Um, it, to me, it's kind of a it is a uh, rejection of nihilism in a way. And I feel like those games are they are perfect for their medium. Um, yeah. What Yoko Taro and his and his team did with video games, I it made me want to be a better like game writer and creator. It made me think like, what could I do with tabletops or you know with any game that I'm working on that approaches this. Because they truly use that medium to enhance the story. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, Automata specifically, I think, is a story that's can only be told through its medium in a way. Like, yep. I, I don't think that it would work as a movie or a novel. No. I think it has to be a game, right? But you mentioned Ending E, and literally my next question <laughs> was, at the end of Automata, did you make the choice? I did. I made the you choice. Did? Were yes. you crying as hard as I was when I was doing I was, it? I was. I was. <laughs> I was sitting there like that. Uh, that little image of I think the the girl from Monsters Inc. Like with a controller, um, like like bawling her eyes out. That was me playing through that last um, that last part of ending E and and making yeah. The way to the world is just blazing, and you're like, damn you, Yoko Taro. <laughs> yes, yeah. I hear that. I hear that song, and I tear up. And it's funny because like a thirsty is another. Buccaneer fan um and we we kind of bond over that and he and I will both jokingly tell each other that we privately judge people on the choice that they made <laughs> like when we find <laughs> out they played automata all the way through yeah yeah one of <laughs> one of my good friends he got to the end of ending e and he was like no 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 I can't do it I can't oh. do it and he had to go back and he had to get all the endings you know he had to do the whole thing oh, you, coward. Yeah. you coward you <laughs> coward <laughs> So one more question about yeah. Nier before we move on, and Go that is it. what is your favorite uh, Okabe piece? Like, what is your favorite piece of oh, music from oh, Okabe? Oh, that's so hard. Okay, I I think there's, there's too many that I really love. Um, I am a very big fan of... Uh, what is it? Wretched Weaponry, which is like, I don't know why. I just really like that. Uh, it's one of the Automata songs. Um, I'm, I am also, because he also did the the music for Drakengard 3, which is another, that game is amazing. Anyone mm -hmm. who hasn't played it, play it. It's really funny, but it's also messed up. And it will it will make you, it will change how you look at things. I, I think that the final song 
in that uh, in Jack and Guard three is one of the most interesting experimental pieces of music I've ever heard. Uh, it's it's also it's nice to listen to, but it's also kind of stressful to listen to, especially if you play the final fight of that game, because that that is horrible. Um, yeah, it is. It is awful, but it is it is a really interesting piece of music. And it's not something that you hear, you know, a lot of. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I myself have not played Drakengard three. I've like watched Aurora Valkyries like long oh, timeline. Yeah. Of, you know, because yeah. I was like, I don't want to go back and ah, I want to go. But anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah. All right. So let's move on. Yeah, let's sorry. talk about <laughs> no no no. I can talk about the philosophy behind you know I, the near games all day. I, I knew I knew Zach was gonna be excited about the, the section <laughs> yeah. this line of questioning. I, I haven't played any of them, so I'm just and, like, I, okay, and I've been trying for good. years to get hit for what it's worth. Good. I just you know, throwing yep. that out there. Um <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Let's you know your work with Paizo and everything, right? So mm-hmm. organized play, right? Organized is a uh, play is kind of an aspect of Starfinder that we haven't really fully delved into as a group yet. So before we get into the particulars of your position as a developer for organized mm-hmm. play, uh, can you give us kind give us and our listeners really a rundown of what organized play is? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, organized play, you know, that's a lot of how I got really into Pathfinder and then later Starfinder once it came out is basically a community worldwide. Um, There's, you know, hundreds or possibly thousands of people who all play in this like living campaign. You register on Paizo.com. So you have your character or characters and whatever you do at your local game day or with your friends, if you're, you know, reporting using the website, that character can go anywhere else. So you could play a character, you know, with your friends or at a, at a game store with, you know, strangers, hopefully new friends. And then you could take that same character to Gen Con and play, continue their story. Or you go on a business trip to France, you know, you could actually find a a game store. I mean, if you could, if there were people spoke that spoke English, obviously, but, (laughs) and there are, I mean, but you could go to like, you know, South America, France, Italy, Germany, and play with their community using that same character. And so I, I feel like that's, to me, that's the coolest part of it, that there is this huge community of people that, you know, does, they're basically playing through the same, you know, same campaign and you can just move your character around. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry about, oh, my group fell through. Cause like (laughs) as anybody who's been in a tabletop group knows, (laughs) there's always that one night that somebody has to cancel. And like, Mm -hmm. instead of saying, well, I don't get to play till like next week or in two weeks, you could be like, well, I'll go see if there's another session and go play with some other people. Right, right. So basically, the the rules are standardized in a way that allows yeah. you to take characters like you, no no crazy homebrew builds yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> right? Okay. Gotcha. There's like certain aspects that are sanctioned. Right. It kind yeah. of feels like the MMO version of of the game in a way. Like to to make somewhat of a comparison, you know, like that because you can play the same scenarios over again and. And they all, but they all exist in the same living world, right? That what happens in these scenarios kind of affects the greater story that's happening each year. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's yes, that is yeah. correct. Uh, there's reporting at the end of each scenario, or not each scenario, but a lot of scenarios where there's a big choice, you know, a, a choice that's made by the players and their or their characters rather. The GM will record that. 
and that gets reported. And then we, um, like org play devs and the org play manager people have a way to pull that data. And so we will very often use that to influence what happens later on. Like, so in like a the later major- if the majority of players make a choice, that mm-hmm. it becomes the canon choice. Yes, that that's is cool. so cool. Yeah, yeah, well, I love, cool. I love that too. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, there is, yeah, we do. We have some options that are not sanctioned. Like to me, that's the one bummer is that you know you can't just do anything like there's a lot open but you can't literally play any species when you start out um there's ways to earn a lot of them through boons like just playing or you know being part of conventions or volunteering stuff like that but i I wish it was more open but that is kind of i think the price we pay for having it be a worldwide thing and you're Mm -hmm. trying to make sure people have you know more of a i mean every table's different but you want a more standardized experience like you don't want someone to go to a game and be like wow, you know, all the other characters were overpowered. I didn't get to do anything with my, you know, Mm. basic character or go somewhere and the GM is just making things up and like, you know, a TPK happens for no reason. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. But you got to balance it out. And I, you Mm -hmm. know, to some degree, having some of those options um, kind of behind having to play is a good incentive, a good reward structure to get people to play more often. Right. And like, you got to have some sort of reward structure in place because the difference I think maybe between playing the same group around a single campaign versus playing worldwide is that the reward structure is going to be different. You know, when you're sitting around a table with the same people, you're all building the same, the, the loot for instance is, is all kind of shared amongst the table. Whereas is here like you're, it's a much more meta sense of gaining rewards. It's like, oh, now I can play a Skidamander. I've been, <laughs> you know, played like through six scenarios yeah. or whatever it takes to get to, uh, to be able to have that burn to play, which I think is kind of cool. It, it does facilitate or in, incentivize you to play more. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And we, and it's a big thing of like wanting to balance between you want people to be able to, you know, try out the cool options that they're, you know, excited about, but you also want to reward, like you said, reward people for being part of the community, but also reward the people that are stepping up to be GMs, uh, which, you know, not everybody's cut out to be a GM, not everyone and not everyone has like wants to do it, wants to try it or just volunteering to make sure that, you know, conventions and game days happen. So it's like, here's a reward for those people that are going one step further beyond just showing up and playing. So absolutely. So what is your role as an organized play developer? So um, it's, it's funny. I maybe should have said this earlier, but very, very recently, I actually transferred from work play to just Starfinder APs and modules. So as of, as of a couple weeks ago, I am now developing, uh, developing modules and I will be developing an AP that comes out in a couple of years. I mean, it's, everything is so front loaded. It it takes us a long time, like with publishing. Mm. So it's kind of sad to like, it's weird to think like it'll come out in early 2023, but like I'll be (laughs) working on it in like, you know, early next year. Uh, But as an organized play developer, you, you are basically, you are in charge of outlining, you you come up with a meta plot, um, like the season theme, Uh, you'll outline scenarios, you'll have relationships with freelancers and community members, and you'll, you'll basically be in charge of picking who's going to write the scenario for you. And you'll kind of like project manage and, and like guide them as they write. 
And then of course you do the development, which is you know, checking to make sure, you know, things aren't wildly off the rails and off of power levels as much as you like the power, you know, that is expected to happen at that level as much as you can. So it's um, a lot of balancing then. A lot of balancing. Uh, so it's very, it's like, it starts with being very creative and then it kind of moves into being a, like a mentor. And then it's about balancing and just kind of checking things. Uh, some Sometimes rewriting. Sorry if you can hear noise in the background. It's okay, no worries. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll cut it out if we need to. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about Starfinder's current organized play season, as, as mm -hmm. you said? Like, what's happening? Yeah. So uh, it's still my baby. Uh, it's the one that I launched and, and came up with. So it is Year of the Data Scourge, which is basically there is a digital attack uh, where kind of a strain of different malware hits Absalom Station in the Pact Worlds and it disrupts infospheres, messes with technology. Uh, if you if you're interested, you should start with um, it's it's season four of Starfinder Society and number 401. I actually wrote it which is just called Year of the Data Scourge, is an introduction. Your Starfinder agents who have come back from a mission and you, know, you land on Absalom Station and everything kind of goes downhill. <laughs> like everything right. just, the Data Scourge hits, it's chaos. You've got to fight your way and like troubleshoot your way back to the, to the base, which is the Lore Spire Complex. And then, then like a uh, hostile robots attack. And basically the whole season is figuring out who's behind this and why, um, and then trying to stop them from continuing to, to attack the Pact Worlds, as well as troubleshooting. So, you know, there's there's been drift beacons that were, you know, kind of scrambled because maybe this, this person or organization or whatever it is has been trying to, you know, mask their activities. And so Starfinders have gone out to try to repair a drift beacon, um, there is, and, and this is not, um, this is not related to the drift crisis, though in some ways this might be kind of a, like a prequel, like a prologue to, uh, if you, if you'd like it to be, but, um, and there's been, you know, there's been some, in, there's some interesting things coming up. I don't want to say too much about, but, uh, there's, there's some weird stuff. It's, it's like, there's a lot of tech support, but it's also like combat tech support. Um, right. And, and, you know, so it's all the hackers and engineers are like loving the season, but there's something for everybody who plays it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty, pretty interesting to me. Uh, and I, you know, having it be a precursor to the drift crisis, which is, I'm really excited about because it me changes, <laughs> changes the world mm -hmm. for that, you know, in a way that like outside of organized play doesn't happen very often. Right. Like yeah. the organized play kind of has its own continuity, you know, and the, the core setting of Starfinder is, up until now has not been changed. It's just is what it is, you know? So I'm yeah. really excited for that next launch. And so, you know, you've moved now from organized play to adventure paths, yep. uh, which is great because our next section of questions is about adventure paths. Well, that uh, works out. <laughs> You've written quite a few books, I have. Uh, actually, you know, um, Strange Aeons, you wrote the first book for that, right? In Search of Sanity. Um, I didn't write the book, but I did write some of the back matter. So like okay. the, the new weird creatures that appeared, uh, I, I, I did some of those. And then you uh, had some parts in Legacy of the Lost God. That was your book, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I wrote yeah. one of the books of that one. Uh, and then, of course, Penumbra Protocol. Mm -hmm. And then... 
you wrote Waking the World Seed, which yep. is the first uh, book of Devastation Arc. Um, I haven't read all of these. Like, I haven't read the Strange Aeons one or the Extinction, Extinction Curse one. But uh, the ones that I have read, seems like you favor some of the darker themes. And I was just wondering if well, this is She's a Yoko Tara fan, man. Exactly. Right, right. Or, like, <laughs> did you seek out these particular tones? Or were you, like, seeked out to be the one to handle these, you know? Like, uh, it's I mean, maybe a little of both, because when when people when devs would ask me, like, what are you you know, what are you into? At that point, I was a fairly prolific freelancer. And when you get to if you get to that point, devs will start to be like, hey, we like your work and we've worked with you a lot. So like, what kind of stuff do you want to do? We want to give you and even like newer freelancers, we want to set people up to succeed. I know that right. from being a dev now. Um, so they they would ask me and I, I would say, you know, I, I like I have extremes. I like really silly, weird stuff. And I like horror in like very dark, tragic themes, which again, Yoko Taro fan explains a lot. But um, they uh, let's see. Jason Keeley approached me and was like, hey, I think you'd be good because I'd written some horror themed like Pathfinder Society and uh, and other kind of scenarios like that. He's like, hey, I think you might want to do this. Are you interested in, you know, the horror like shadowy campaign uh, that we're going to do? And I was like, hell yeah, sign me up. So then he and I kind of like talked back and forth and planned. Um so yeah, that is. I feel like that is definitely something that's become one of my specialties yeah, <laughs> as a, little, a writer. Little signature, <laughs> yeah. little signature yeah. thing there. Um, out of all the the adventure books that you've written, do you have a favorite? Uh, I okay. I think that my favorite one is actually one that will come out next year. It's been announced. I can talk about it. Uh, <laughs> the Drift Crashers AP, uh, which will be like beginning of Drift Crisis, kind of exploring what what happens after that initial event uh, that kind of messes everything up and starts this cycle of changes. Uh, Drift Crashers is going to be developed by Jake Tondro, another awesome co-worker yeah, of mine. Uh, love him. Love us some Jason Tondro, oh, yeah. man. He's, oh, yeah. Yeah. Legend. Yeah, he is. He is. He is amazing. Like not not just in interviews. Like he is a great person to to be friends with and to work with. Absolutely. That's awesome. uh, so he's the developer, and he and I had kind of talked about it a little. But I am writing the second, or I have written the second volume of that, which is uh, basically all I can really say about it is that you get to meet the goddess Desna and have brunch what? with her. Yes. Holy wild. <laughs> yes. And I feel like Whoa. that it's weird because th there is some very dark um, kind of messed up stuff, especially in the beginning of that uh, of that volume. But I feel like it's also me getting to explore kind of the, the lighter side. And mm -hmm. one thing I'm really passionate about is I like fights and I, I love having like the big like starship battles and, you know, exciting combat, you know, close quarters on a space station. But I also really like non um, like nonviolent encounters in Starfinder, you mm -hmm. know, that are based on skills or, you know, negotiation. And so I have a, quite a few encounters in one of those sections of that AP that are not solved by combat. And I, I'm really proud of them. I'm proud of what like what I did and the, the basis that Jason or Jake rather gave me. There's I have there's too many Jasons at Pizo. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. just say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's too many. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm I'm really proud of that one. So it's not out yet, but hopefully y'all get to experience it like sometime next year. Yeah, awesome. I, I'm I'm very excited about it. 
Um, we do want to dig in specifically to signal screams and mm-hmm. uh, the penumbra protocol because uh, we just finished it and yeah, it was uh, it was a doozy. Uh, That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, it was probably one of the most. Um, I don't want to say difficult, like in like game difficulty wise, but like we're very uh, dedicated to the role play, and so you know, book two was it was hard. Kind of it was culmin- hard for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah a culmination was- of a lot of the corruption that was going yeah. on in the party, and uh, it put us through the ringer in a lot of those kind of emotional ways. Um, what what were some of your inspirations for this book? Because there's a lot going on in it, you mm. know. Absolutely. Um, so obviously, you know, things like Hellraiser and mm-hmm. like even even Candyman, like a lot of those like classic kind of new newer classic horror movies were big inspirations. But also I, I tried to pull a lot of inspiration from reality. So, you know, in talking with Keeley and working on this, I, I like horror and I like the, you know, the more like violent and, and like creepy horror, but I also really like that subtle horror that is just around us, like the existential horror in our everyday lives. And so I proposed to him that I, that I could explore like corporate horror and, mm-hmm. and he liked it. Like he liked what I did. So we, you know, we worked on that and I just, I re- I feel like I tried to think about things in the modern real world that that unnerve me or bother me and where they could go in a magical you know technologically advanced setting yeah when kind of brought to their logical end yeah yeah like the late stage capitalism and corporate culture kind of thing like how bad could this really go (laughs) pretty bad yeah oh yes turns out it's pretty (laughs) bad yeah, I mean, between the the corporate evils, you got the cyberpunk mm-hmm. vibes, and and a, uh, what I thought was a very oppressive final dungeon, uh, there was a lot oh, yeah. in, in yeah. the book. So, like, what was your favorite part to write, and and which was the hardest? Oh goodness. Okay, so hardest, as in like most diff. I mean, I guess mm, I guess it could be most difficult to actually do, or most emotionally difficult. Yeah, um, or just challenging to uh, to mm-hmm. to conceptualize and put. Together. I mean, however you want to interpret that question. Um, I have. I feel that I have improved, but at this phase of my adventure writing career, sometimes I would struggle with with dungeons because. To me, I want it to feel, you know, and and most people like want it to feel natural. Like I've actually talked a lot with another coworker, uh, John Compton and uh, Ron Lundin, who are also great developers that I look mm-hmm. up to. Uh, I've talked with them about like dungeon ecology and how it's important to have, you know, this this creature doesn't just sit in this room and wait for someone to come and fight it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it that's that doesn't make any sense. So, like, how do you make these creatures have like? you know, natural patterns of movement and like, how do they interact with each other? So I feel like that final dungeon, I really enjoyed writing it because I just was able to be really creepy and and come up with all kinds of like really scary stuff. But it probably was one of the harder parts to write because just trying to make all of that work and, and not having too much. Like I remember, I think one of my milestones, Keely was like, you have too many combats. You're going to have to get rid of something. And I was like, oh no, like what do I get rid of? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the that, black site yeah. was definitely, definitely, yeah. I think the, the hardest part for us. It it was, a, I mean, it was a very oppressive dungeon. I think mm-hmm. maybe just having the, the thin hallway, like it was like maybe five foot wide hallways and just hallway after hallway. And it's just like, yeah, you just, it's so claustrophobic is how mm-hmm. I, how I would describe it. And, you know, yeah. 
yeah. definitely lent itself to the oppressiveness of, of the location for the, sure. The walls of of corporate America just <laughs> crushing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think my favorite part was writing the uh, coming up with the NPCs and writing their dialogue and kind of how they would they might interact with the party. Um, I yeah, this, yeah, that second part where there was where most of the NPCs of that book were. That was like when you were going to Scuttle's shop and you were yes, going to I love to meet. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no name and ghost and the lizard land. We had a blast. Yeah, that that, like, that we the, had a lot of fun with with part good. two. The, yeah, the, I'm glad. I mean, like, you know, not that we didn't have fun with the dungeon, but it was hard. Like this, yeah. we were like cutting up the whole time. You know, it was just because like there was such a wide range of characters in different scenes. Like all mm-hmm. those encounters had their own particular vibe, and we're mm-hmm. all big fans of the cyberpunk setting, which was really featured because we were on verses and stuff like that. Yes. And, uh, it's cool, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Oh, go on. No. Do you have something to add? Go. Go I, for it. I was just. I was just gonna say that you know, from a, a standpoint of like writing, whether it's literary or games or film, like anything, really, when you're when someone is having an experience, it's really important to have a, like tension release at the right time so that you mm-hmm. can rebuild tension because otherwise, and horror thrives on this because otherwise, you're just on you know tense on the edge of your seat the whole time and you just get numb to it and so i was hoping that a lot of that second part could serve as a release valve because the first part you know you explore the you know you get into the corporate horror and you start learning like what's really going on with like kaon rise and his company and you know that that first dream sequence um yeah that first dream sequence (laughs) i know that was the first thing i wrote that needed a content warning and it was because it was primarily because of that um so i just feel like that second part was like okay let's let's relax like let's have some fun change up the mood and then we can you know we can build that tension up again in the third part of the adventure so that was that was my intent and i'm glad that at least your group seemed to you know you got that and enjoyed it yeah yeah Yeah, that worked very well but speaking of kaon so in our run uh adam connected kaon to one of our pc's backgrounds which made him a pretty large part of the game so i was curious Mm -hmm. what your thoughts are on kaon and then his role in the campaign i it was one of those where i i was given a name and it was like you know this is this is like the primary villain of this you know this part of the AP and this is how he is connected to the campaign. But I, it was one of those where I started writing his, you know, I started coming up with his backstory on my own and I started to really have fondness for this character, which happens to me almost every time. Like (laughs) even my worst villains, I always, you know, whether it's, it's not always a tragic backstory, but like even evil people have something redeeming about them. They have some quality that is not, pure evil like they have a grandmother that they love or you know a pet that they that they take care of so it's like i i don't know i just got really attached to him and i was like dang like this guy is probably gonna just be killed and or die or whatever so i was like no but um i really like part of it is like i wish i could do more with him i wish there's a way to save him from from his fate but i i i am glad to hear that you tied that in one of my favorite things as a player is when the GM ties my character's backstory into the well, into the game. It's funny because one of the one of our characters, he's a, a, a mechanic from Versys, and he specifically wanted to be like a starship mechanic or mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, 
So, you know, we introduced the name Kaon Reese back when we were playing against the Aeon Throne because it was like flashbacks to oh, Josh's nice. character. And, and I, I got to like set that up because he was a good person before the corruption. Like Kaon Reese was yeah. like a humanitarian, you know, and mm-hmm. like he, he was a really good person. And so like I got to set that up in, nice. the, in the first adventure that we played. And then when they meet Kaon Reese at New Elysium, and he's like acts all weird immediately put them on sus you know and yeah got to like make that even more tragic i guess because now there was like a personal connection to like i knew kaon when he was good and now he's like he's beyond <laughs> beyond redemption at this point because he's fully corrupted you know yeah. and just there's there's nothing that can be done so it was it was a i loved kaon reese he's one of my favorite like npc villains that i've gotten to run as a GM and it was really, really fun, like diving into him and, and using all of what you had set there mm. as a, as a source of inspiration to like really like sell how good he was and how horrible it is now that and like using him as a reflection to the characters, right? Cause they're all consider themselves good people, but they're all corrupted. And so to see this person that was probably Better than any of the, the PCs, <laughs> <laughs> like, as far as they like, yeah. uh, could be a good person, you know. <laughs> You're like, no, uh, why was it him? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, speaking of corruption mechanics, do you yeah. like corruption mechanics, Jenny? Do you do you see them getting used again in future adventures or scenarios? How do you feel about them? Um. Well, I love I love a good corruption arc, <laughs> definitely for like a character. Absolutely, it's another another thing. Uh, Automata fans will get mm-hmm. uh, the corruption system to me. Just kind of gives uh, you a mechanical way to apply it. I I like it. I thought it was really cool. Uh, Keeley came up with that one, and I think he did a lot of the work. I think he pretty much primarily was the one who who came up with that and worked on it himself. But I, I, I mean, I, it would have to probably be another like a horror game or another type of game. Like if it was like kind of the dark cyberpunk where you're doing jobs for all these different, you know, evil people or, you know, unscrupulous things are happening. I could see that being used again. But, you know, mainstream scenarios or, or like APs, probably not. But anything with a horror aspect. Yeah, I would absolutely put something like that into a game if I was running it um, or writing it because I, again, I just think it's a way to show because like with a video game or book, you know, you just tell the audience or like the audience gets to see it, but you're really an active participant in a tabletop game. So it's a way to give consequences and, you know, actual, actual problems that arise from choices you make or from things that happen to you. And, you know, it's that kind of, you know, when you stare into the void, it looks, it stares back at you. It's like, well, it, it does. And you take on aspects of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think, I think dealing with the role play consequences of corruption are actually harder than the mechanical consequences of corruption in a lot of ways. It's like, how do you. It definitely yeah. was in our case. Yeah. yeah. Like, how do you yeah. take, oh, I have to do this now? Well, how would my character deal with acting right. this way? You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so yeah, um, Devastation Arc, right? We mm-hmm. are doing the Aeon Throne, Signal of Screams, Devastation Arc. Oh, nice. Okay. We're going to do the yeah. whole thing, right? So we can't get into too much detail about <laughs> about the book because we're not there yet. And I mean, even though Adam's read it, I'm going to be a player. I don't, you know, 
I don't want to spoil me too much on it. But can you tell us kind of about the differences in in tone and how your approach shifts for writing like a high level adventure like Devastation Arc? What's different? Yeah. Uh, Well, high-level combat is definitely something that requires a lot more thought and finesse when you're designing it. Um, A lot more, a lot of play testing if you can manage it because, you know, we don't get to play a ton of high-level Starfinders. So it's hard at early levels. You can almost imagine in your head how it's going to go down and you can think like, oh yeah, you know, the the envoy is already dead if this attack does this much damage or something (laughs) like that. It's like, okay, maybe we should nerf that. But High level is a little more tricky because there's just so much going on and with the players, with the characters and with, you know, enemies that you could uh, encounter. But, you know, I I feel like in a lot of ways it is it is another example of me getting to do kind of the the dance between this is really silly and weird. And like, what what were you thinking? What? And, you know, disturbing. Uh, So there's I, I had a slightly similar mindset going into it, but I was it was different because this is meant to be the first volume. So it has to set the tone rather than Mm -hmm. the second, which is like the transitional volume of the AP. Mm -hmm. This one, you know, you've got to come out the gate strong. You've got to sell this idea and you've got to like build the foundation for the next two books, which, you know, you don't know what other people, you know, the outline, but you don't know what other authors will do. So you're trying to make sure they have a good like starting point. And uh, that's, I think that was, yeah, that was like the first, uh, first volume that I ever got. And uh, that's the one that's coveted usually because, you know, your name's on the first book. And even if the play, even if they don't make it through the whole thing, they'll probably start playing the first book. So, right. Um, but yeah, I, I was more like, okay, how can I do my usual, usual thing, but also build for a more epic kind of like, you know, galaxy spanning story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because I've been selling it to the players. I was like, all right, you know, we're going to get through signal screams. I know this has been the horror one. This has been kind of tough. And you, <laughs> and you guys like don't have access to the things that you want to have access to, you know, like you have to deal with this corruption and all this weight. Don't worry. We're getting to the Avengers <laughs> AP. Like, and that's how I see devastation yeah. arc. Like a lot of how that's written. It really feels like an Avengers movie or Absolutely. it's like over the top, like big mm-hmm. action, big, huge yeah. things. But I was reading through that first book and I was like, yeah, this is definitely some Jenny stuff in here. I mean, I, they're, they're like, cause there's just like these little, pockets of like absurdity that no no they're fantastic like i can't i can't wait to to um, to show them to the players but it's just really funny because i i've started to pick up a little bit of of kind of that your your little signature flares that you put on there i'll just say that the lumberjacks cracked cracked me up so zach when we get Please to look forward to it, huh? Yeah. Okay. I, I cannot believe they let me. I still am like, I can't believe they let me get away with that. But I, I think that every time I write something and now and now I'm developing. So now I'm I mean, it goes through approvals, but now I'm the one starting with the weird stuff. And I'm like, I guess they like it because they they hired me and they keep <laughs> keep asking me to write. You're going to be telling the people that submit stuff to you. Uh, this is not weird enough. I need to take this <laughs> I need you to turn that up a little. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I had I had a lot of fun and I do I agree that it is more um I feel like Signal of Screams was more of like a personal thing mm-hmm. especially for your group if you made them, you know, related to K uh to Kaon in some way like they knew him in the past. Um that makes it a very personal conflict and motive, but this is definitely the more like oh no, this is like 
expanse Avengers levels of like, mm-hmm. this is the whole galaxy. The, yeah, the whole That's, enchilada yeah. is yeah. under threat and we're the people that could solve mm-hmm. this problem. You know? The galaxy may be doomed then if that's if they rely on our party, you know. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how the ending of this <laughs> yeah. goes. But. Yeah, Adam oh, types sure it up a lot. He's, he's definitely got us looking forward to it. But just like we still have awesome. a whole other book of signal screams to get through before we're oh, there. Oh, yeah. So. That one, Heart but of Night. Cool, <laughs> yeah, the cool thing about the third book is, you know, it is still very firmly in the horror genre, mm-hmm. but it, it, it becomes much more, like, comic booky. Like, it's like yeah. it, it crosses over that line of, like, all right, this is so much horror that it's kind of funny. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it, you yeah, it's kind of the campy. Yeah, it's yeah. very campy. You know, like it's like you're going into Hellraiser's home mm-hmm. place. You yes. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, so I do. it's just everything's over the top. You know, yeah. and, uh, and I think it's going to be shorter. Anyway, we're looking forward to Devastation Arc and and the new Drift Crisis stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm congratulations on your promotion into that. Thanks. Move, move into that, you yeah. know, like, uh, I'm excited that you're on that team. I mean, that team just keeps getting stronger and stronger every time, you know, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Awesome. So we have a couple of listener questions because we obviously can't sure. spend too much time on Devastation Arc or anything, yeah. but uh, we have a few listener questions. Um, the first one comes from Tyler. Uh, he is the GM of the Min Max podcast, a 2E podcast, good friends of ours. He oh, asks... Okay. How will Horizons of the Vast influence Starfinder Society's story in the upcoming seasons? I don't even understand what that question is asking. (laughs) I think I do. Um, So I know that uh, we we collaborated among the teams and we may have seeded some Starfinder Society, like a lodge and a a venture captain out there in that uh, in that part of the vast. So. It is quite possible that future Starfinder adventures will visit there, will visit that. And you will be able to possibly, uh, I can't speak for, you know, the person inheriting the Starfinder Society, you know, captainship, um, but I'm pretty sure this person and I have, they have not been announced yet, so I'm not going to steal their thunder and and, like give Mm -hmm. a name, but um, I am pretty sure that they're interested in visiting different places you know that we have in APs and and I know that like we've been trying to have more cross pollination so you might yeah I mean you might get a chance to explore that explore the that Waydana system in Starfinder society at a point in the future that's cool I like the idea of of the the people who are playing organized play and and are in the Starfinder society Mm -hmm. in fiction going to these different places that have been affected by the APs and seeing like the aftermath of it or whatever. And, and I, th- I think that's really cool. The more cross universe stuff, the better in my, in my opinion. Yeah. I think it's just awesome that the world feels like a living and ever evolving place. You know? Yeah, me too. I love that. And the drift crisis is really going to amp that up. Uh, I think I'm excited. About we've that. got some crossovers planned between the two, uh, the two lines. So I'm trying to avoid everything on the drift. I don't want, I don't want to know anything. Like I just, <laughs> But I, yeah. I want to know so bad, but then I know. It's like, you know, it's like a balancing act, uh, obviously. Yeah. I want to spoil stuff, but I know I can't spoil stuff. So I'm in the same, I'm in a very similar boat. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So another question we have is from uh, Commodore and uh, he asked, did you enjoy writing something set on Verses? And if so, why? And then he has a second part of his question, which is what is your favorite packed world? Ooh, that's a good question. 
I did. I love Versys. Um, I think it is probably my favorite packed world, actually. Uh, I really like the cyberpunk vibe of it. Mm-hmm. I I just I also like that there's truly you, you can do a lot on Versys. Like you could start in the like the cyberpunk big city, but then you could go to, you know, Fulbright and be in the desert and fight like desert creatures and have an expedition or you know, you could probably put sandworms out there if you wanted, or or you could go to um to the dark side and you could fight, you know, really creepy stuff like Blood Brothers and and be worried about freezing to death. So, it's it's very versatile. Uh, I wrote in Signal of Screams. I wrote uh, the Kuvakara Gazetteer, which I believe nice. is that is the only city um, on Verses that's ever gotten that full treatment. And I just, I, I really let my imagination run wild with it. And there is a little bit of me that's just like, you know, Verses is a little bit mine. Like I didn't come <laughs> up with the planet, but I wrote this city. So like, it's kind of half my baby. Um, and yeah, I, think I mean, Sutter is, is fleshed out in that book. Like there is yeah. so much goodness in that book. Like, and we, you know, I mean, they did a, a driving tour of the city. They just got in their, in oh, their nice. SUV that they rented and yeah. dro- drove through all the facets. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> the thing about Kuva Car for, for us when we were playing it is the, we loved it so much that we just wanted to spend more time there. That it was like we didn't have enough. Like, you know, you kind of feel like you're on a, a yeah. hard timer when mm-hmm. you're there. Like, you've got to get these, these drift beacons or, or not the, 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 Transmitters, the transmitters yeah. for the, yeah. for the signal or whatever you've got to get those deactivated and like you, I don't know maybe maybe you didn't write it that way and maybe Adam just pressured us to to feel <laughs> to feel you know compel- I don't know no. but like honestly I would I would play an entire book or or even AP set in Kuvakara like I just as like a cyberpunk style. Yeah. AP, like that would be a lot of fun. I, I would I would love to to write something like that, definitely. I will say that there is a adventure in Starfinder Society, part of the data scourge. Um ses- sorry, Starfinder Society 404, mission not found. Yes, I, I'm very proud of that joke. <laughs> <laughs> and you go back to Verses and you go to you go to Kuvakara specifically. Again, that was a little bit a bit of me being shameless and being like, we're gonna, we're gonna go back to my place that I like hey uh, i also <laughs> yeah i have all these notes well, yeah, go to waste. You know? yeah, yeah right. exactly and it's like uh-huh. our, our setting is so big and that's really awesome but sometimes it feels like we don't get to really dig down so i was like all right we're gonna go back to kuvakara uh you actually get to encounter no name again and you go oh, to cool. uh like cyber cafes so you might actually consider grabbing it if you like if you yeah. wanted to do a one shot and ex- and yeah, like i might do that just for fun yeah, yeah just if you like it but yeah i wish there was a whole campaign set in some of these places like kuvakara is one um absalom station is another that just has so much meat mm-hmm. on the bones yeah you know, Akaton, i feel the same way about yeah 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 absolutely yeah. yeah a lot of great great settings and and i think kind of the the gift and the curse of Starfinder is that it's mm-hmm. so expansive that it's hard to go deep, right? You know, yeah. it's so wide, it's really hard to go deep uh, in, in, in terms of like an AP or something like that. It's, right. You know, right. you, you, you want to send your, your parties all over the place and not keep them in one place. But sometimes those places are so interesting. And I guess that's what homebrew is for. I don't know. Yeah. It works. 
But uh, we have one more listener question for you, Jenny. Um, Go for it. Nusheo asks, do you have a say in what enemies or creatures are in a book of an AP? And if so, which of the Velstrax is your favorite and or least favorite? Ooh. Well, um, we do have a say. So usually when you're a writer, you'll get an outline and you'll you'll have a few creatures that are kind of mandated that you put in or that you create for for that. If you know, like if like this time it was Velstrax, like you've got to make a new Velstrax and you've got to stick it in there. Um, but you do get to make a lot of choices. Like there's a few base like baselines that you have to hit. And then from there, you kind of make it your own. As for my favorite Velstrax, see now, because I haven't thought about this in a while, so I find myself having to like go through, um, I know it's fresh in everyone's mind here, but you know, Mm -hmm. for me, you're a busy busy person. Absolutely. No worries. So yeah, feel free. Take your time. Um, Scan the notes. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did like, I will, I will say I will, the one I made like the Sexton Velstrak, uh, yeah, I, for, I, the forearmed one, right? Yes. Yeah. I, and I had fun with that one. Cause it was just like, you know, what if we have like a zealot, like I wanted to do like the zealot, like the champion Velstrak. Um, and there's, there's just a lot of cool ones. I'm, yeah. I mean, I was so fascinated with the Velstrak lore. That's mm-hmm. also in the back of that book. I, I don't have that up. Do you remember who wrote that? I want to say it wasn't me. I'm trying to, gosh, you wrote that here. I'm going to go to the intro and see if I can find it. Yeah. Um, it might've been Andrew. Let's see. It, it was so, there's so much good, mm. like juicy details in the back there on the write up on, on the Velstrak that, I mean, <laughs> we've deviated, like uh, we have a whole B story that takes place in a Velstrak. Oh wow! Going, okay, go, like like going through the nine truths and everything, mm-hmm. just because it's like there's so much there, you know, to like, and it just layers very nicely over over book two and and kind of going into book three. And uh, I I, th- I thought the Sexton was a lot of fun to play. He he definitely made a few of our players <laughs> puke. Oh, I be bet. Un- be, un- be, un- be unable to yeah. to to operate there like, all i can do is stand here and throw up yeah you know so we've all we've all been there on a saturday night with bad choices right, right. now uh isabel lee is the one That's who it. wrote the sex or all the velstrak lore and i mean yes. she did a fantastic job uh i i'm i like too because that was kind of the mark of us moving away from chitons like the name chiton and kind of kind of shifting the concept to be something that was more uniquely paizo and starfinder with velstrax so i i really like that change so i thought that was pretty cool that we you know got i i didn't do a ton of the work on that but you know we got to be part of that pioneering of let's move away from the old and do something a little new a little different nice awesome Awesome. Well, Jenny, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug or that you're excited about? I know you've kind of mentioned this stuff, but but now would be a great time for you to, you know, plug your socials, how people can find you, what you're working on right now, that sort of thing. Oh, sure. So uh, you can find me on Twitter um, at Jen Jayski, just J-E-N-J-S-K-I. So just like, you know, shortened my name. Uh, I, I also do stream on Twitch. I'm currently in a hiatus, but I will, I will be back probably like mid October. Uh, so that is Jezebel 77 on Twitch. And, uh, the big things that I have coming out are for one, I have the drift crashers volume. Um, I want to say that's early 20, 
I want to say that's like late 2022 when that's coming out mid to late, something like that. And then I actually have a volume of another Pathfinder AP, which is something I don't do a whole lot. Um, the Blood Lords AP that they've announced, like kind of the undead intrigue. Uh, I am writing one of those, uh, one of those volumes and i had a lot of fun because again you know over the top horror and and weird stuff so surprising that they tapped you (laughs) to to write an undead book i was like are they ever gonna i was like i wonder you know i don't play as much pathfinder but i wonder if they're ever gonna call me again for that and then sure enough the undead i'm like oh all right i guess we're doing this (laughs) you know who would be good for this (laughs) yes yes and that should be a really interesting campaign too um I also am working on a, a homebrew. Well, the setting is is normal Starfinder, but the the story is something that is original that I'm writing that I hope to start streaming on Twitch uh, on my channel in January of next year. So, like doing an actual play, yeah, on mm-hmm. Twitch, cool, nice. Yeah, so I've got I'm working on I've got my cast and I'm just I'm we're just kind of working on like figuring out some logistics and I'm doing I'm doing like prep and you know building that story right now or well i want it to be very responsive to the characters but there is some level of you know i know that we're going from point a to probably point b <laughs> that i'm doing yeah. now so hopefully that's going to be ish yeah. Uh, yeah in the yeah. general area of b yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you tell us who your who your cast is yet or are you holding on to i'm gonna that? hold on to it for now right. Um, right. Yeah, it might be some names people recognize. There's probably going to be some folks who who I've uh, I've drawn in from other things that are just friends of mine. I like to game with, so I'm excited. Nice. That'll be that'll yeah. be fun. And we'll to check that out. Yeah, sure. and that's that's about all I got right now. Okay, awesome. <laughs> well, Jenny Jarzavki, it has been a absolute pleasure. I always enjoy meeting another near fan and yeah, someone me who's too. <laughs> had their had their soul crushed by Yoko Taro's. <laughs> existentialism so yeah uh, yes definitely is a pleasure so one thing we like to do here to end things off uh sort of our uh catchphrase if you will is we'll see you because we're southern and i always throw this on our guests and it's always funny for us and awkward for them so i just want to give you a heads up we're gonna do a three two one and then everybody in concert will say we'll see ya sound good all right all yeah, right. Sounds good. Put put your best Texas yeah. accent on. You got to you got to get country yeah. with it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see. You. All right. So it, it, again, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, Jenny. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right. Three, two, one. We'll see you. We'll ya. see you. <laughs> awesome. Yay. This is fun.